My name is Tina Conrad, a.k.a. DJ Breast Cancer, and this is a podcast on journeys through cancer. It is also about those making a difference in the world of cancer. My mission is to inspire hope, help one person every day. Consider it a girlfriend's guide to breast cancer. It's where inspiration meets expectation, where reality meets dreams and dreams lost. It's about life after cancer and how other pink sisters can help you through. It's about sharing your story, your journey. Cancer is life-changing. Sharing our stories and creating dialogue about breast cancer realities and research can inspire hope and change. This podcast was created to inspire love, hope, and light in the darkness. This podcast is inspired by a shining light, my dear friend and pink sister, Sandy Clausen. She passed away in July of 2018 after a recurrence of breast cancer, and she never gave up fighting. Season three is dedicated to Lindsay Blythe, a mom of two beautiful young children and an Instagram friend of mine. She was full of light, hope, and love for others. She was an amazing mom and wife. I want to give names and faces and details to these women that have passed away from this horrible disease. Breast cancer is not a good kind of cancer. There is no good cancer. So let's talk about it. Welcome to DJ Breast Cancer Season 3. everybody, it is Tina Conrad, aka DJ Breast Cancer. It is season three, episode two, and I am here with a very special guest. Her name is Melanie Penn. She is a previvor. She is a BRCA awareness activist and an amazing artist. Um, she did artwork for New York Fashion Week, um, and she's just blows my mind with her artwork. It's just so moving and so powerful and so beautiful. And I'm so excited to chat with her here today. So hi, Melanie. How are you doing tonight? Hi, I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you tonight. Oh, I know. Like now, now we can be like in real life friends. Like I'll have to find you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Off of the gram and onto the phone. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, Just like the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) so I know um you know I want you to introduce like yourself in a few of your own words but I know that your mom's diagnosis um which was you know a different experience than mine obviously but your mom's diagnosis definitely played a big role into how your you know journey kind of went in terms of being a previvor and you are the first previvor guest that I've had on here so if you want to introduce yourself just a little bit um about like your mom's diagnosis and how maybe that impacted your journey and decisions um and, and how that you know went into into play sure so my mom was diagnosed um I think she was 40 maybe 39 and a half, somewhere in that vicinity, but we always say 40. Um, And I had just turned four and I was, I guess, always pretty aware for my age. My parents were not sugarcoating type of people. They're still not. I'm not either. Maybe that's genetic too. Who knows? (laughs) Um, So I was aware of what was going on pretty much the whole time. And um, so 
that was always in the back of my head, like that I watched my mom be so sick and on the flip of that, like come through it so powerfully as a child. And she, so that would have been, that was like 91 probably when I was four, cause born in 87. Right. So she years later, a couple of years later, when Dr. Lynch started doing his trials, her oncologist said to her, um, well, you already had cancer. What do you have to lose? Because of course you would say that not knowing anything about the BRCA gene. No one knew anything at that point. So she said, okay, and sent some blood work in. And then it came back positive and turned out the what she was going to lose was her other breast because she had had a unilateral mastectomy at the time. And it was interesting for me because since it was so many years later when she ended up actually making the decision to remove the other side prophylactically, she had kind of a survivor and then later a previvor experience Hmm. once they found out that there was a link and there was a chance that you would have a much heightened increase of breast cancer um, recurrence on the other side. And it was interesting because so many of the women I talked to only had one side of the view and hearing from her like years later and she dealt with a lot of the things that I dealt with from that end as well like um, both medical professionals and regular people saying how can you be doing this like you're cutting off a healthy breast so it was really um, you know it was kind of traumatic growing up knowing like when you turn 25 you got to go get tested that's all I heard for a long time um but once I got there and made that decision it was so helpful having someone who understood it from both ends so that was I don't know it was very um we were always my mom and I are super close but the year leading up to my surgery I would say we became like next level close. so I love yeah yeah and my mom is like my rock too and and it's interesting, like, and we can kind of get into this a little bit later too, but I mean, she really dealt, she took my news really hard, like really hard um, Same. to the point where like I, I had to almost be like the parent or, you know what I mean? And say like, mom, I, I don't blame you. I don't blame God. I don't blame, you know, I, I just, we just have to get through this. We have to put all our energy into getting well, you know? And so I knew she took it hard, but I had to release her like of that feeling, you know, like, you know, and once she got through that, she, she was just so amazing. Like she was just such a listening ear and like, just got it on a level that like nobody else could get, you know? So like when I needed to cry, I could just call her and cry. Like when I, oh, it's just, I mean, you know, like, it's just so great to have a mom who sometimes just lets you be, you know, and just lets you vent and let you just cry, you know? Yes. A hundred percent. And I think it's, it's interesting you said that my, my family is always kind of, especially my dad and I, but my mom and I, to an extent, you are always kind of finding humor at the things you should be laughing at. (laughs) So she said to one of her friends one day, she goes, I feel so guilty. She got this gene for me. I did this to her. And her friend turned around and goes to her, why do you feel guilty? Someone did this to you too. And she was like, oh, I guess that's true. And that was kind of the end of the guilt, I like to think, because we've all been laughing about that since. So it's just, it's true. I think we um, internalize things with that a lot and it's on my mind because I'm hoping to have children at some point in the future and I my husband and I have decided I am just not willing to go through IVF I have full 
full respect for all the women in my life who've done it both to weed out the BRCA gene or other genes and for infertility, but it's just not something I see in our path. And it's something I think about, but I just keep telling myself like, my mother raised me and I got through this. And if I have a child and they have to deal with it, we will get through it also. It's just, you know, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's definitely the, the weird feelings of guilt I think are there with everything. But I mean, you know, my retina detached in May and my mother gave me that awful gene too. So you can give your kids anything. It's just a matter of life. You know, that's like the running joke in our family. I'm like, well, did I inherit anything good? My metabolism or right, thanks for that. Like, <laughs> Thanks, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So, and it's all, I think when you can laugh about the things, it helps. Oh, you know, for sure. Helps for you sure. get through it, for sure. Yeah, humor is an amazing form of medicine. Um, I know it was really interesting when I was reading like some of your, you know, prior stories and different things. Um, like I saw that one of the doctors had said, you know, I don't know if it's to you or to your mom specifically, but like basically the age of the surgery and how it, as long as you had your surgery by the age of 35, you would be okay. And just how naive of a, of a comment that was, but like now having so much more knowledge, you know, and everything, like if you want to talk more about like the whole pre-viver thing and like what that meant and like what that kind of looked like for you. Yeah. So this is actually, um, without getting too into it, because I, I really loved my former breast surgeon and I don't hold this against her at all because I think my big, I guess you could say pet peeve with BRCA. Um, and I would say a lot of the other genes as well, although this is the only one I'm really versed in at this point is that both screening guidelines and surgical guidelines are kind of all over the place. Um, there's things that have been put out by force, um, which is like facing our risk of cancer empowered. Um, I believe that's what that stands for. The organization that does a lot of work for BRCA um, to like spread awareness. And they said their screening guidelines, but I still have friends who are seeing doctors now all over the country who are being told that the magic number is 35, which given the number of friends I have who were diagnosed with no gene prior to 30, I would say it's kind of insane to throw out anything as a magic number towards mm -hmm. people. Um, so I walked in in November of 2017 anticipating a normal breast surgeon appointment. I figured I'm going to get an exam and she's going to ask me if I've given any thought to having kids yet because then, you know, they would plan my psych my screening around that because you can't do some of the screening if someone's pregnant. And the same things I was expecting every time, but my surgeon had actually moved to a new practice and the office was like, oh, see her partner. She runs the... Um, like um, high-risk surveillance program, and she's awesome. So I was like, okay. So I wasn't anticipating walking in to hear, no, the actual accepted medical standard now is 10 years before your next of kin's diagnosis age. So I was 30 and a half at this appointment, hearing that I should have already had this surgery. And um, I had... I was just shocked. I mean, it's, it was probably, I would have probably taken the news better if I hadn't <laughs> been hearing the complete opposite of that for so long. Yeah. And it's just, um, it was really shocking for me. I got my results back at 25 and I was like, I'm getting rid of everything. That was my 
because to me, it was like, I just want to stay alive. And that was what was important. And I didn't want to go through what my mom went through and so many other women I know. And, um, I was talked out of it by doctors who were like, well, you're going to want to breastfeed and you're not married yet. And all the things that I would say a lot of survivor, uh, pre-vivors rather, I'm sorry, here, um, it's just like ongoing, like, but what if you want to breastfeed? But you're, you're young. It's fine. You're young. Everything's fine. Like, why are you worried about it? We'll do screening. We'll do screening every six months. And I was like, okay, so I'll wait a little while. And I kind of had so many people tell me essentially that I was crazy for that being my, what I wanted to do initially, that I just put it out of my head. But I was so shocked hearing that I was actually on the right end of things from the get-go um, and just crazy. I think, I don't know, I got shoved so far to the other end of the spectrum that I went through multiple biopsies and pretty much every screening I had, they saw something and it was either we need more screening or we need a biopsy. And in my head, I was like, well, they told me I'm crazy if I do this before I'm 35. So let's just keep moving forward, you know, and it was just, I don't know, it's very frustrating looking back on it. And I just kind of feel like it's pure dumb luck, so to speak, that I made it this far without being diagnosed, given, you know, everything I now know. Um, So it's just, it's interesting. I also, up until that appointment, had never had anyone mention to me that BRCA1 was more linked to triple negative, which is harder to cure, harder to treat, um, more likely to have recurrences. Um, No one mentioned to me that, because everyone was like, oh, we'll catch it earlier. No one mentioned to me that one in three women with breast cancer go on to become a stage four diagnosis, regardless Mm -hmm. of being caught early. And I just, um, I was raised by a research scientist. So my father was a genetic engineer for his entire career. And it's just really hard for me coping with the fact that so many medical professionals didn't give me the information that was out there for me to make these decisions. So that's kind of what brought me to wanting to talk more. And, you know, I'll always present everything as this is what I was told because mm-hmm. this is not what I do for a living. It's not my, I didn't go to school for research or medicine, but I just think it's really important for people to ask questions because I, yeah, it was a rough five years that I feel like I probably could have better navigated with more information. No, I love that. That's, it's so powerful. And I think you sharing your story is, is so it's, it's going to help someone out there too. I, I remember reading too on your, um, you know, somewhere when I was researching that said, you know, one of the doctors <laughs> bluntly telling you that being alive for your future children was more important than breastfeeding. And I just thought it was such a, you know, that black and white sort of voice in, in all of this, you know, really seemed to be impactful, you know, and maybe it's, you know, sometimes we all talk about bedside manner and, you know, blunt is sometimes not seen as a good thing, but sometimes too, we do need to hear like the things very black and white. And I know it helped me on on occasion in my journey too, just to have someone very clearly tell me something. Um, but I wonder if you remember like that whole situation or how you were feeling. So that was actually my current breast surgeon during that appointment I just mentioned. And um, the running joke, every time I see her, because she always wears really cute shoes. <laughs> and the running <laughs> joke is like, 
um, every time I see her is you have no idea how close you came to me vomiting all over your really cute shoes because I just wasn't expecting, <laughs> you know, <laughs> she's very blunt. And she, she outright said to me, this is one of the things um, I love about her is um, she said, I'm not the kind of doctor who thinks something and doesn't tell their patient. She goes, mm-hmm. so if I think you're making a very big mistake, I'm going to tell you to your face. And I really appreciated that because I feel like I've had a lot of doctors, not just dealing with breasts and ovaries just in general in my life kind of infantilized me um and the entire process like the entire appointment I would just feel like they felt like they were speaking to a child and I just feel that I want to be given the information I want to make a decision and I live in my body 24 7 and have for 32 years and this person (laughs) sees me for 15 minutes maybe twice a year tops so regardless of their having the medical knowledge, I, I know my life and my body and I need to take their medical knowledge, which they should be giving me accurately, and then relay that to how it um, will work in the confines of my, my existence. And she was the first one who really did that. I actually, um, I wrote a piece, a short little blurb that was in the genetics issue of um, Wildfire magazine a couple of issues back. And I mentioned that this doctor I felt was actually the first person who put me first because she was the first one who wasn't mentioning breastfeeding and wasn't mentioning, well, what about your husband and you're not married yet and these type of things. Mm -hmm. And she was the first one who was literally in not so many words, your life matters. And that was really important. I think I'm with you. The black and white is really important to me. Um, I'm not very black and white with most areas of my life, but (laughs) I really, I really like having data and having things that I can go off of and concrete numbers, if they exist, should be offered, you know, for you to be able to look at that. So yeah, she's, I really, as much as I almost just, died that first appointment from shock and horror. Um, I was, I'm really, really grateful to her. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, and I, I know like when I saw my oncologist and, and I was considering like, do I go out on leave? Do I not go out on leave? Like I just could not make a decision like to save my life, like all this chemo flowing through my body. And he just looked at me one day and he was like, who's your advocate at work? And it was just like the most blunt, but to the point, you know, sort of question. And I said, well, you know, I have a boss and she cares about me. He's like, no, no. Who's your advocate? And I was like, I don't have one, you know? And he was like, well, then I seriously need you to consider taking a medical leave. And it was almost like at that moment, it was just the black and white that I needed because I just couldn't make a decision. And, and it was really, it it is amazing that people have this power sometimes to help you through what is very hard to navigate, you know, and they can like provide some wisdom and some expertise and just some sometimes just, you know, blunt, you know, honest to goodness talk, you know, and and it's, it's very, and if you can find doctors like that, like I, I know, you know, it's a balance, like you have to find ones with some good bedside manner, but you also need ones that are going to talk to you straight too, and not just tell you what you want to hear. And so I think it's, it's a good balance when you find that one great doctor or two. It's very true. And I think also um, possibly worth noting for me, good bedside manner includes being blunt with me as long as you're not rude about it. Mm -hmm. Like I think, unfortunately somewhere, I think, 
at least based on what I hear a lot and what I see in reviews for doctors that I have been seeing for almost a decade and have never had an off experience with and just I have friends who see them and I've seen in reviews and it seems like a lot of people conflate warm and fuzzy but not necessarily telling you everything with proper bedside manner. And for mm-hmm. me, I want you to be polite and respectful, but I don't care if you don't break a smile the entire appointment. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I mean, I think, you know, we've all had the doctors who come in and they don't look at you. They don't treat you like human and they just throw a bunch of, you know, info at you or barely anything. And they barely glance at you and leave. And to me, that's horrible bedside manner on both the personable level and the information level. Cause mm-hmm. you have to really be interacting with the person to give them the care that they need and deserve also. Um, but I just, I don't know. I think you can be a friendly, sweet person and still be laying out the blunt. It's kind of like a, I, I grew up in a very happy, healthy, tough love environment. <laughs> and that's kind of how I am. Also, all of my friends know if you don't want to hear the real advice, don't go to Melanie because <laughs> she will tell you to your face exactly what you probably don't want to, but need to hear. And I think, I don't know, for me, that's the the best area to be in because I've had doctors who were super warm and fuzzy and I got like nothing from them. Nope. Totally agree. Yeah. No. And it, it takes, it takes a special kind. And I felt like I had a really great dream train dream team, but I had to get to a point, you know, we did, you know, we did kick out a radiation oncologist because my husband was like, hell to the no. Am I having him point, you know, laser beams at you? Like he left a tablet in my lap and took personal calls during the, you know, during the meeting. Oh yeah. Like it's crazy. And then came back and was like, um, you know, it's kind of like this video, but it's kind of not like this video. And I'm like, well, what parts are like the video and what parts are not like the video, you know? And at the end of it, my husband, he's just like, no, we have to find somebody else. And we did. And we found someone who was much more, I don't know, just came from a point of science and like could explain things. And again, I might not going to go have beers and like be best friends with this guy, but like he was just very professional and told me like the facts and, you know, made, I don't know, just, I felt like he cared about me at least in terms of living. And so I, I tell all of my listeners, like, if you're not if you're not getting what you need, like you, this, you know, you can go talk to other people, at least go talk to other people and see, you know, like get a second opinion. What are they saying? You know, so just being informed to your point earlier about, about everything, as much as you can get information, it's going to help you, you know, to make a a much more informed decision. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I feel that this especially um, comes up on the other side of things too. So with reconstruction, most people are not getting all of the information because you meet a surgeon who happens to be in your network and happens to work with your breast surgeon or your oncologist or whoever. And they're going to tell you whatever technique they're best at knocking out in the shortest amount of time possible so they can get on to the next surgery, whether or not it's necessarily the only thing actually available for your body. Mm -hmm. So, Um, I was talking to, and this is comes into the bedside manner thing as well. The number of women I know who've been told, well, you'll probably look okay with clothes on, but you know, that's all that matters, right? Is astronomical and horrifying both at the same time, because I just, 
it goes back into, you know, you want to find a team that cares about you as a person, not just who's going to treat the specific body part that they were trained to operate on. No, I'm, so, I'm, and even like when I went through my surgery, which was almost six years ago, I mean, there was no discussion about going flat and, you know, like that wasn't even an option. Like no one even talks about it, but same. now, now yeah. I'm really happy that, you know, that it is a conversation like that. If people don't want to put an implant back inside of them, I feel like they should know the pros and cons and what that means. And, you know, I, I just feel like now at least there is a lot more dialogue and a lot more conversation about what are all of my options? Because it doesn't just have to be what, to your point, what you're good at or what you normally do or, you know, what you're trained with. Yeah, hundred percent. So my mom opted not to reconstruct, um, and as well as many other women um, I know who just didn't want to deal with it or had whatever personal reason for not wanting to. I mean, my mom's exact words when I asked her about this were, I had two kids to raise and I had cancer. I didn't have time for that. And that's such a, I mean, anything's a valid answer, but to me, that is such a valid answer mm -hmm. for, you know, not wanting to deal with God knows whatever reconstruction they were doing in the late eighties, early nineties. So, yeah. um, it's just, but no doctor during any of the process ever mentioned it to me. And I think at one point, I don't remember which surgeon this was during the last six years, um, said to me, but don't worry, we won't leave you with nothing. Hmm. And I'm like, don't worry. I'm like, my mom's fine. <laughs> like, what am I worried about? You know, it was just very, I don't know. I think it comes down to what I said before. We live in our bodies 24 mm seven, -hmm. 365 for however many trips around the sun we've taken. And they meet us 15 minutes a year and assume that they can decide for us. And it's just, you know, it's very interesting. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I can't imagine feeling like I could make those decisions for another person. You know, I've been asked to design tattoos for people and that made me kind of like I did it, but I was like, oh, it's a little permanent. So, <laughs> you know, I can't imagine telling somebody you, you're going to need boobs again or it's not going to be okay. I just right. can't imagine right. telling somebody something not medically necessary was necessary to their life. If yeah. someone came in and they were like, I can't imagine not having breasts, then of course. But I think 100% they need to add that to the conversation. Yeah, that's really powerful. Well, speaking of tattoos and artwork, um, you know, I, you recently did a piece for me and you've done yeah. so many amazing pieces of artwork um, for, for all kinds of people and for all reasons. But it's just such an expressive form, you know, with the words and with like an outline. Um, if you if you don't mind, like explaining like your artwork, but, you know, definitely like it seems like you use artwork to connect with others. Um, it's like almost a form of healing and empowerment. And really, to me, it's like taking back the narrative. Like this is what it now means to me. Um, so if you want to describe your artwork a little bit, that would be amazing. Sure. So it's actually kind of funny because so I work as a technical designer um, during that's my nine to five type situation and has been for almost a decade um, in the jewelry industry. And I was actually my background is in metalsmithing. Hmm. And um, the running <laughs> wow. joke was always, yeah, I work on a computer because I can't draw. So it's, um, it's kind of funny that this became my little um, passion project on the side. 
after so many years of telling everybody, no, I can't draw. So I actually can. It's just not my comfort place, but this year has kind of pulled me out of all of my comfort places. So why not? Oh, in my I art love that. Yeah. So when I was starting to reach out to people, so I spent the first five and a half, six years of my BRCA um, journey with no one really other than my mother to talk to about it. Um, I kind of when she went through her screening um, for BRCA in the trials and everything, it was like, we're not going to tell your insurance company. We're going to use a fake name. We're going to, you're going to be a number, not a person, all of those things to keep everything private because of the stigma. And when I first found out that I was positive, I was like, well, I don't want to talk about this. So I'm sure no one else wants to talk about this either. And I had a bunch of doctors telling me about removing my ovaries and everything. So I didn't really want to talk to my female friends who weren't dealing with this because I was like, well, they can have kids until they're 50. You know? So mm-hmm. I was like, they don't have the same stress. They have other stress, but not this stress, you know? So it was just a lot all at once. So I had pretty much spoken to two of my closest friends who were both males and my family. And that was it. I really didn't talk too much about it until a couple of years in, um, because I would come back to work really stressed out from screenings and everything and people would ask. So I started opening up a little bit. Um, and I really didn't search for a community until after that doctor's appointment when I decided I was going to have surgery. And I said, I have way too many questions. I need to find the people. And I typed in the hashtag BRCA and found all the breasties and started like slowly toes in the water, reaching out and then just kind of said, screw it and dove in, which was the best decision ever. So the first four drawings I did um, were loosely based on and inspired by four women who really, really helped me through um, getting into my like getting through the year leading up to surgery. So one of them was obviously for my mom. That's actually the logo um, that I have on my Instagram and for my store and everything. So it's a um, like a flat chested pinup and you can see the scars on her chest and it says goddess right across the chest. So it's the outline of a woman filled in with the words. And then I have one for my friend Mackenzie, who is um a lot of people watching or listening to this rather may um, know her, Mackenzie Allman. She was one of the first women I really, really like dove in hard and connected with. And now she's one of my closest friends. Um, She was also going through her prophylactic surgeries during the time when we connected um, publicly and her sharing was so instrumental to me. And then my friend, Danny, who was my very first breastie, one of my circus buddies, um, Kat found out I was having surgery and said, well, Danny was diagnosed with breast cancer and she just had her mastectomy. I'm going to connect the two of you. So we just hit it off immediately. And then the last one was for my friend Ruth, who through complete craziness, this is one of my, this year has taught me the universe gives you what you need. (laughs) Um, In the BRCA Sisterhood Facebook group, which must have over 10,000 members, I happened to, while trying to reply to a um, a question on my old horrible phone. It took me to the profile of this person. And I went back to the question. I said, not to be a stalker, but we have 15 mutual friends. I think we grew up in the same hometown. And Ruth and I became instant friends 
right away and bonded over not only our leading into our journeys together with Braca and our surgeries, but just a bunch of other weird nerdy things along the way. And we had all these mutual friends from high school, which was very weird So in a group of 10,000 people. So it was just these four women. I wanted to do something to say thank you. Like so many people helped me, but I wanted to give something back just to show. And I was started working on these drawings. These four were not based on their body forms, the way the current ones are. They were just random pinuppy kind of style women. I wanted them in badass poses. I wanted them to look strong and confident. And then I filled them in with a bunch of adjectives that described them and also, you know, other women in the um, community who'd helped me. So I put those out um, and then I was kind of like, well, I, I kind of want to keep this going. So I posted an inquiry and I was like, hey, uh, who wants me to draw them? And was not anticipating <laughs> the response, <laughs> but I got it all. I was like, maybe I'll get like two people. So I think I'm at 85 something submissions later. That's amazing. Um, it's amazing. And I had been turning out quite a few a week and I just kind of between my eye and everything, I've been sort of taking a break, but um, still cutting out, I think between one and two a week. But now I take photos. I ask the women to send me photos that they feel capture them or their journey or their personality. And um, I rough in an outline from them and then using stories that the women send me through their blurbs or I ask for quotes that help them get through treatment or surgery um and I try to fill them in and I've had it's a really you know everyone's journey is so personal and so different so I've had some emails that were just so upsetting um from the get-go some I mean everyone's journey is rough everyone's pain is valid and I think everyone's pain is equal I'm kind of very against the how to say cancer Olympics mm -hmm. that I think oh, yeah. we all kind of run into a little bit like oh that's all you went through well this is what I went through. I don't feel that way I feel like your best day could be someone else's worst day so mm -hmm. it's just a don't you know um but I've had some stories that were truly I had to put my computer down because they were a lot to get through and I try very very hard in every drawing to still pull out the positive because I think it's really important. And I've had messages from women after saying, you know, I haven't ever looked at myself that way. Thank mm -hmm. you for finding something strong about me. And that's really my goal. Um, I think all of us to some extent, even if it's only one day ever, look at ourselves in the mirror and we're like, how the hell did we get here? And how did this happen? And why me? Mm -hmm. And what is this? And you can get kind of lost in that. I definitely did for a while leading up to surgery. I was just kind of in a hole. It wasn't really in the best place. And it's important to sometimes step back and only look at, um, you know, the little bits of the glimmers of hope that come through. And I think that's also why just doing the outlines has been so appealing to me. I feel like your outline, I always tell people, I'm like, if you're making an amazing pose, if you're jumping in the air, it doesn't matter what your face looks like. You can send me the worst selfie in the world because your <laughs> face isn't going to be in this picture. So it doesn't matter, you know? And I think we get so hung up on the, the little details sometimes that we kind of can miss the bigger picture and the bigger picture can be pretty beautiful sometimes. No, so that's so true. And so powerful, like in the words, 
I mean, it, it's like the words are the story, you know what I mean? And the narrative and the outline is the outline. It is you, but it's so much more than just that outline. Like, I don't know. I, your artwork just really moves me and is just so beautiful and just really evokes, you know, so much emotion, um, when you, when you look at it and, and that's what art's intended to do. And I just, I can't say enough good things about what you've done and what you've done for other women. I, and even just the story of someone saying like, I've never seen myself that way. I, I think that that's, a, you know, a true testament to, to what you're doing and, and I don't know, just moving things forward. Um, I also love too. I saw, I think it was on your, like your anniversary or something. Um, you, you had a quote and it was all of you have been such an important part of my healing and I will never be able to thank you all enough. And I just thought it was so beautiful that you were thanking people for, for letting you tell their stories and draw them. And I just think that that's such a beautiful thing. Cause I just felt this sense of purpose, you know, come through in you and in your artwork and, you know, it, it wasn't enough for you to just go through this experience of being a previvor, but you had to give back and, and not just, just to previvors, but to anyone impacted, you know, by, by a lot of things. Um, and so thank you. I, th- I just think it's so amazing what you're doing and you know, all the artwork. It's just beautiful. Well, thank you so much. It's just been, I mean, I can't imagine not thanking ever. First off, it's just, it's such a level of trust. I mean, some of the stories I've received and sometimes I get emails and then a day later, cause you know, everyone, I'm pretty blunt that I've slowed down and I have like a five week queue. So if you send me something, don't expect to see a drawing that <laughs> soon, you know, it'll appear when you least expect it. Um, so I've gotten emails after the fact saying, um, never mind. I don't want that one going out there. Use this version. And it's, it's a lot, I think, of trust that people put in me to open up your story to someone you've maybe never even spoken to before, you know, and, um, for a lot of women who submitted stories to me, it's been the first time they ever shared their story. And Mm. I remember vividly the first time I ever told mine out loud. And I think it's just such an empowering moment because it's like you're taking back yourself and you're owning it. And I just, the project wouldn't exist without everyone being so trusting and open with themselves. And there's that, it's just so cliche, but I'm going there anyway. There's that quote that's like, tell the stories of what you've been through. Cause it'll become a page in someone else's survival guide. And I really, that's maybe, yeah, totally cliche, but I really do believe that. I think when I think about, five and a half years alone where no one, (laughs) thanks a lot, even my doctor telling me how painful an MRI biopsy was going to be versus now being able to like sit down with a friend and being like, you're going to feel like they're murdering you on the table. Thought you would appreciate (laughs) the warning I didn't get. You know, it's very, I just can't imagine not having all these stories out there now and not being able to help women tell them because sometimes you just, don't know. I mean, I'm not, I do some ish writing in the little blurbs below my work, but I've always been a visually expressive person more than someone to sit down and edit a piece of writing. So Mm -hmm. it's just, I don't know. It's, I'm very, very grateful that every single person who's contributed has trusted me enough to share their story. Yeah. And one day I'd love to see them like even all together. Cause I think like together, they'd be like this beautiful tapestry. Like it'd just be amazing. That's in the works. Oh, <laughs> yay. Yes. Awesome. 
exciting. Yeah. I have um, my little dream is to put together a coffee table book. Oh, so, I love it. Um, a lot of you who've anyone listening to this who's given me a story are probably going to get hit with release papers soon. <laughs> I want to do that. That's on my goals. And um, my hope is when I get to, I think it's 115 who die every day from metastatic breast cancer, right? Um, my hope once I get to 115 and stories about anything, they don't all need to be about breast cancer, but that number is pretty important. I want to get that onto a poster and it's just going to be one giant grid of all the stories that I've done. Mm. So I just think, I don't know, it's so, I said a while ago when I was kind of explaining the project and I really feel strongly about this, that a lot of times women's stories get swept under the rug by both ourselves and by society. So I get we know what society does where it's just like, well, deal with it and be seen and not heard. And, you know, and I get a lot of emails from women and their stories open with other people have had it worse and my story's not worth being drawn, but, and I'm like, no, no, mm -hmm. <laughs> your story matters. You matter. And we sweep ourselves under the rug. And I really wanted to, I think, you know, all of us get in the habit of scrolling. Sometimes it's a little bit easy. You see a big block of text. You might not read the entire thing. Lord knows I'm guilty of skimming through things. But seeing a woman's figure filled up with words, I think it's maybe a little bit harder to scroll past. Mm -hmm. um, I really wanted to present stories in a way that were going to make people want to read what was underneath them. So that was really important to me, I think. We don't hear about things because for so many years we were told not to talk about them. And I just think how, how powerful for us to be able to take back our own stories and tell them in our own words before someone else decides to tell some watered down version that doesn't sound like we really went through anything. Yeah, that's so powerful. Um, one other amazing, powerful thing with your artwork, um, I saw that you were basically like helping with the body paint for New York Fashion Week. And it it just looked so amazing. It was almost like taking your artwork and putting it on real live survivors. If you want to speak at all about that project and, and what that, you know, how that tied into your artwork. So that was probably one of the biggest honors of my life and also just the most emotional day ever. <laughs> just completely overwhelming and emotionally on all counts. So I had connected with um, Dana Donifrey who runs Ana Ono Lingerie um, and does their, you know, design and runs it and the whole thing. She's amazing. And we had connected randomly on Instagram because all of us are connected on Instagram. Yeah. And she had seen some of my first round of drawings and sent me a random message about it. And then both of us kind of went about our lives as we do. <laughs> and I called her because I was about to place an order and I was like, I need sizing help and uh, hi. And then I was like, oh, by the way, and you messaged me like two weeks ago, what's up? And she was like, oh, are you free in February to come body paint people to make them look like your drawings for New York Fashion Week for um, the show for Project Cancer Land? And I was like, well, I want details. And also I've never painted on a human in my life, but what's the worst thing that could happen? Let's go. So, <laughs> which tends to be, it's kind of become my attitude for life in the last year, which for better or for worse. But, um, so she started telling me about it and I looked more into Project Cancerland and it's just how, oh, 
I feel, you know, I have multiple friends living with metastatic breast cancer and thriving and it's, it really kills me how little money and funding goes mm-hmm. specifically to research for that. So no one's dying from a lump in the breast, right? You're only going to die when the breast cancer metastasizes through your body and goes into the other systems and that's it. And then it's, you know, a race against the clock to keep treatments working for you. And all that being said, only two to 5% of all funds are going to it. So when I found out about this show that was going to have every single model walking the runway in lingerie, loving their bodies and showing the world what their bodies really look like, you know, um, reconstruction and natural breasts and no breasts and one breast and just this is me and this is my scars and this is me without my hair and here I am. And to see that they were all going to be walking in the show to raise awareness and money for Metaviver, it was just how could I not want to be a part of that? It was just so amazing. And I felt, I don't know, it was a very... I always feel very, very connected to the women I'm drawing, even when I maybe don't meet them or uh, know them in person or ever. Maybe I might never meet some of them ever, but I just feel like we know each other because of what we've shared with each other in the process of working on that. And I felt an even stronger connection on that level with the two women that I painted that day, because while I was working on them, I had a list of words um, and I said, you know, let me know if any of these work for you or you tell me what you want me to paint on your body. Just call out words. And it was so wonderful talking to them and catch bits of their stories and they would tell me more about their lives. And, you know, one of them wanted mother or motherhood. I forget which word. I think it was mother. Um, Very big down their leg. They were like, this is so important to me. And it was just so nice learning about another person and their life on that level and connecting with them for the hour I spent painting them. And I just, it was an incredible experience. It was so, they just looked, I don't know, on a, on a personal level, it was amazing getting to watch my artwork and my vision come to life as part of the full vision for Project Cancerland. But I just, it was overwhelming. I couldn't, these women are so powerful and so amazing and they have so many important things to tell everybody and so many things the world needs to learn about their diagnoses and what they're going through. And yeah, I would say anything that can be done to help raise more awareness and get more funding going towards actual research instead of just more pink ribbons everywhere is (laughs) something I will always, always get behind. For sure. And I I think Emily Garnett was, Yes, yes, I love Emily. I know, I love her. And I know she listens occasionally to my podcast. So Emily, we love you. We love um, you. We she love talked you. me up. I was like, I'm a little nervous. She's like, it's <laughs> going to be okay. And then you'll come on mine. I was like, okay. <laughs> I so, love her. I love her. I spent a day with her and her son for her Aww. birthday in the city. We went and got cupcakes and stuff. It's just, you know, just so I want all of my incredible friends who are, you know, thriving at stage four, I want them to have so many more birthdays, you know, and that's the point of it. You can't keep sweeping it under the rug or, you know, they say it's like the elephant in the pink room, you know, because no one wants to talk about it or clearly put funding towards it. Mm -hmm. So it's just so important to keep, these are, these are amazing humans with incredible lives and families and kids and parents and, you know, 
yeah. was rough. One of the women, um, one of the first, first women I drew in my series, Monica, actually passed away not long after I met her. She she walked in that show as well. And it's just that really, like I said, um, I think it was maybe hard for other people to understand. I was just destroyed mm-hmm. because just from the emails we had sent going back and forth, I felt so close to her. And then is just, you know two days later, there's no more posts anymore and the person's Mm. gone. And it's just, it was horrible. I, I can't. And then, you know, and and then I think about all of my other friends who are facing down the same, you know, the same diagnosis. And it's just really, it's, we need to do something. So I was, was so, so honored to be a part of that. And it's just, yeah, such an important, important cause. Yeah. And this whole podcast is actually dedicated to my friend who passed away from a recurrence and like it just lit a fire under me. Like, you know, and I went through cancer. I know time is not, you know, I I don't take it for granted. I don't, but it just lit a fire under me. Like if I want to do something, I have to do it. Like you can't, you can't think about when am I going to do that? You know, somewhere in the near future. No, like if you have a dream, if you have a passion, if you have something that a story that you have to tell, then tell it like you have to. And I really feel like Emily is doing so much to change the narrative, even, even from, you know, like metastatic to regular survivors, you know, or I I can't remember she had a term for them too, but like she, she doesn't, you know, distinguish between the two, even though she knows that they're different and the treatments are different and the, what they're facing is different. She, she's still like wants to bridge that gap and have real dialogue and real conversations. And I just can't, she's really challenged my thinking in so many positive ways that I can never say thank you enough for all that she's done. Like, it's just amazing what she does. Yeah. Yeah. She is incredible. And I think it's been kind of, I don't know. It's funny. (laughs) No, she might kill me for putting this out there, but (laughs) I sent her a picture of something the other day and because, um, she used to work doing um like elder elder care law mm-hmm. and like yeah. estates and everything so I was in the bookstore and saw a picture of a journal that said the title of it was I'm dead now what and it was for you know leaving together a journal of everything your loved ones might want to go once you're gone and for two weeks I was like I don't know if I should text this to Emily but I kind of took it to show her so finally I was like all right whatever I'm sending it to her and she was like girl <laughs> <laughs> I know all about that. I was like, well, isn't this just our friendship? So, <laughs> it's just been an ongoing, wonderful year of us knowing each other, swapping. That's what she said jokes at the worst <laughs> moments ever. That's how we bonded. <laughs> and just being generally inappropriate and loving life. And I think that's so important. Like there's, I don't know, we, you've got a limited number of time on this planet all all of us do a limited mm-hmm. amount of time no matter what our current I mean could, I always tell people when they're like you don't have much time to have kids with Braca I'm like you're right I could get hit by a cab tomorrow I live in New York City you never know <laughs> so it's just I think trying to laugh as much as possible has been and she's I don't know Emily and I somehow managed to always make one another laugh until things come out of our noses. <laughs> I, I, love I think it. it's important, you know? <laughs> I love it. She's, she's just amazing and you are too. So it's awesome that you. <laughs> the world connected for the two of you. Um, switching gears a little bit about mm-hmm. 
physical activities. And I know you mentioned in like your, um, you know, your communication to me on, on filling out for the show, but you talked about acrobatics and I just found it so fascinating. So like, you know, metal smithing, artwork, acrobatics, girl, you got like a lot of crazy fun things going on. <laughs> but if you want to explain a little bit about how you find joy or how you kind of relieve stress in that. Yeah, so it's actually, this is like bittersweet at the moment because um, who knew eye surgery actually comes with about 4 million times the physical restrictions for much longer than mastectomies do. So it's going to be about another month before I'm allowed to be upside down again, which is just depressing. So um, I was a gymnast from three until just shy of 18 and continued just doing weird things with my body for the interim, like 10 years. Um, because you know, party tricks, like, Hey, who else can stick their head foot behind their head? Isn't this funny? (laughs) (laughs) So that was like, just, you know, my whatever amusement for that time. And then about five years ago, I found a circus school, not too far from my office in Manhattan. And I think prior to the breasty community and up small, small, small handful of female friends that I made um, at my last job. My closest friends have always been guys. Just kind of worked out that way. I was always sort of a tomboy growing up. Um, And I had a lot of problems with other females growing up. I was really, really, really skinny and kind of boyish and just got horribly made fun of perpetually throughout my entire childhood. And like, I'm very glad there was no social media back (laughs) or it would have turned into one of those lifetime movies. So (laughs) finding the circus community was kind of amazing for me because it was just this open and inviting and completely non-judgmental group of people, mostly female. Um, And not, I wouldn't say the whole community is mostly female, but the classes I was in happened to be. And it was the first time I started really bonding with other women who were in my age range. So that was cool. Um, That helped me, I would say, a lot on an emotional level. And it was just so nice being back up in the air. And the first time I started on silks and the first time I was up off the ground flipping through the air again, I was like, oh, I miss this so much um, from my youth and it was just amazing. And then I mostly for the last two and a half, three years have been doing contortion stuff on the ground um, and other flexibility work. And then there's this steel hoop called a Lyra. That's like my happy place. Cause it kind of reminds me of uneven bars from when I was doing gymnastics. So I use exercise as my anti-anxiety, um, have very bad anxiety and have pretty much my entire life. And I have found that if the only things I'm able to think about are what muscle groups I have to activate and where my foot and hand need to go next. So I don't snap my neck by falling out of the air. I can't focus on anything else. If I get on a treadmill, I'm like, Oh, I forgot to answer that email. Let me pull my phone out and answer that email. It just doesn't work. I can't, it's not, I I think it's awesome. My friends were like long distance runners and they get in their zone and that's amazing. It's not, I need to be where I can't be distracted by anything or I'll die clearly. Otherwise my brain won't shut off. That's, that's it. So it's been, I don't know, it's been so much fun and I, just absolutely miss it so much. So I'm really hoping I get cleared in another month. 
so I can be happy and upside down again. Yeah, so <laughs> amazing. It's so amazing. Yeah. Um, and it was actually, um, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, finish. No, so I pushed for it. When I first met my plastic surgeon, he only talked to me about going under muscle um, for implant reconstruction. And made an offhanded comment to me once I asked about it, about only doing over muscle recon for people who do things like CrossFit who really need their pectorals. So I was like, oh, so things like this and pulled out a picture of me with like feet where feet don't belong and balancing on my elbows with everything all. So he was like, uh, I don't know how you're doing that, but okay. <laughs> so, and kind of shifted gears. So it kind of also, I would say, my extracurriculars sort of sculpted my reconstruction journey as well. Well, that's good though. And and I love yeah. that, you know, you did get back, obviously the eyes causing some, you know, issues now, but I do think it gives hope for people going through double mastectomies. Like I know it took me a long time to feel normal again, but I know you said that like it took time, it took effort and there were some possible modifications, but you did get back to doing what you love to do. And I, and I love that. Yeah, it was, I actually, um, a couple of days after I was cleared for exercise, I was, and this comes with a little disclaimer. I don't think this is normal. I, I have very few friends whose recoveries, even with going over or with not reconstructing were this, speedy, but um, I was about maybe seven and a half weeks out, eight weeks out when I finally was able to get an appointment to get cleared for um, getting back to life. And maybe three days later, I was back inside my Lyra. And once I like pulled myself up into it and I was sitting up there, I just started sobbing. I was just so ecstatic Mm -hmm. because I was so convinced no matter what I did, that this was going to be the end of it. You know, I had so many friends who ended up with like frozen shoulder or other issues. And I've had scapula issues for years. I was like, I just didn't want them getting, getting worse. I, um, I don't know. I have a lot of chronic things happening from prior, (laughs) um, prior things. And that was my big concern was what if eight weeks of doing nothing is going to just lock everything up again and undo years in physical therapy. And, um, I was just so grateful, so grateful that it wasn't my, my mom and I both now have the same favorite story because after her mastectomy, a nurse came in and said, don't worry if you can't lift your arm all the way, it's going to get there again eventually. And my mother threw her arm over her head and goes like this. And the nurse was like, oh, I'll be right back. I got to get a doctor. And I <laughs> did the same thing because a team of residents came in and woke me up at like 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> and she was like, any questions? Any questions? And I was like, yeah, the T-Rex arms, it's mandatory or I'm allowed to lift my arms. And he goes, well, you can, but you won't be able to. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> Let me show you, huh? <laughs> and, and sent him flying out of the room after it. So um, I just, <laughs> you know, I think kind of, I don't know, maybe it was mind over matter. Might be freakishly high pain tolerance. I'd be willing to bet that also <laughs> on both of our counts. But I was being able to get back to it was really, really just, I was so grateful. And I would encourage anyone to just not necessarily go swinging through the air again, but as soon as your doctor says it's okay, get moving. And if you can mind over matter things, as long as it's physically safe for you to do so, like try to get up and take a short walk or whatever's going to get you moving again. Because I think for me anyway, like, 
the first month after my eye surgery, I wasn't even allowed to bend at the waist. Hmm. So because it would increase pressure to my eye versus like two weeks after my mastectomy, once he pulled the drains out, he was like, you can get on a treadmill again. It's fine. You know, you can do leg things. You can stretch. It's fine. Um, so the first month and then I was like, oh, I'm, I'm allowed to sort of kind of go back to the gym again. Okay. But I don't really want to because I've been lazy for this month. <laughs> it's just it's like a kind of rather just sit here and not do it. So I think the sooner you can get yourself moving again, I think it's an amazing, beautiful thing. And watching what your body can do again is also really awesome. Yeah. It's, it's something, gives you something to kind of be like, even if it's frustrating, it gives you something to be proud of. If you can walk an extra like hundred steps versus the day before or whatever mm-hmm. it is that you choose to do. I love that. And I think that was part of it too, for me was kind of building this trust back with my body because I kind of felt like I lost trust, you know? And so now I'm like totally amazed at all that it can do. You know what I mean? So it it took some time, but like even to see, you know, that to run that first mile after chemo for me was just like pretty amazing, you know? And, and it's kind of bewildering sometimes like what the body can go through and still do. And it's, it's pretty, you know, a crazy, amazing feat sometimes, but yes, talk to your doctor, but always move, move, move if you can, you know, and talk to them about what that looks like for you. But I mean, for me, I found yoga and I used to hate yoga, but for me during my, you know, I was in like a polar vortex winter. I couldn't like go out and walk and it gave me something to do, you know, and, and to calm my mind. And it was really helpful for me. So I encourage anyone, you know, to do some form of exercise that they talk with their doctor with. Yeah, for sure. And I would also say if you feel you need physical therapy, um, push for it. Yes. And I had that too. And it was, it stretched me out and I need, I needed that. I I agree. That's very, that's very powerful. I actually went and saw my former PT for a couple of sessions the week immediately before my surgery. And I was like, can you just beat the hell out of my chest area? Because the looser I go in, the better it'll probably feel after. (laughs) So, and maybe that helped. I don't know, but I felt decent afterwards. So I'm willing to bet that it helped. That's good. Um, I wanted to talk to you real quickly too about the Camp Breasties because I know that you attended and it looked so amazing. But if you just want to give like a few, you know, like what that meant to you or or what that was um, just to meet all these people that you'd probably met socially, you know, before. It was um, the most beautifully incredibly overwhelming emotional four days of my life. (laughs) That's pretty much what I've been saying. Um, So I was actually, I work as one of the ambassadors for the New York Breasties. So I was asked to lead a cabin and um, my friend Danny, who I mentioned before, um, my first Breastie, and I uh, led the cabin together, which was um, an amazing experience. So I got very close with, I think we had 10 women in the cabin and um, it was so nice sharing like story. Um, like circle time on an intimate level, getting to know them. And um, I knew a couple of them beforehand and some of them were brand new and that was awesome. And then just such an experience. I don't know how to even describe how incredible it is to just be on a beach and everyone's in a bathing suit and 90% of the women there do not have their original chest. Mm Mm-hmm. 
How normalizing. Like, or to just be walking around and pretty much anyone you bump into understands what you've been through. And I just think in a world where we constantly feel like, oh, I got to cover this because I don't want my scar showing or I, you know, do they look fake in this? Can you tell? Like things that, you know, so many of us maybe think about um, on a regular basis. I just, how amazing to just be walking around and not have to think about it. Mm -hmm. It was just beautiful. I think just to feel normal again and to be around people who really, really get it it was just, I don't know, overwhelming, um, in, in a really positive way. I, it's just so accepting. Like I said, for after so many years of not talking about anything at all to be surrounded by people who really get it and who've been there and who you could just, so many people, we were just walking down to the lake and would stop and you compliment someone's earrings. And the next thing you know, you're 20 minutes into, you know, your <laughs> surgical history with a person and it's normal. <laughs> like nothing feels awkward with besties. And I think also I said to someone at one point, cause they were like, maybe I'm too old to be here. And I was like, please, I met a bestie 15 years older than you down by the lake, you know? And I think bestie is kind of an age, right? If you choose to be part of this community in any way, that's, that's it. It doesn't matter. You could be 22. There were two women at camp who were in their late 60s and were diagnosed within a week of one another. Mm-hmm. I think a week or a month, something crazy together. And they were like Mahjong buddies who ended up becoming breasties by you know default of life and then came <laughs> to camp and were hanging out at dinner with a bunch of 20-year-olds and it was totally not weird and completely normal and everyone gets it and it was just, I just wish it existed more than four days a year. <laughs> yes. I want to go to one. It's, it's on my list for sure. So yes, yes I'm going to try. Um, okay. I always have every um, episode. I have a Tina tip. So you had so many tips that you listed in your form when you sent it to me, but, um, I just love all that you like all the knowledge that you have. Um, but if you were to sum up, you know, one or two tips, if, if you were to, you know, whether it's a, another previver or, just someone in their journey at wherever part, you know, what, what kind of tip would you share with them based on your experience? Um, okay. So my biggest one, I said multiple times through this, um, talk, but it's really just a big thing for me is to open your mouth at your doctor's appointments. Don't just sit there and let them talk at you. Come in with a notebook, come in with questions, come in with a person who will advocate, like you were saying, who's your advocate at work. So I dragged my husband with me to all of my um, reconstructive appointments before surgery because I just wanted another person there in case something sounded really crazy coming out of the doctor's mouth. I needed another person there to look at and be like, that wasn't just me. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's huge. Just um, question things, ask questions, interact with them, make sure your wishes are being respected. That's, my number one always make sure they're giving you the information. Are they explaining things to you in a respectful manner and a manner that you can understand? And are they receptive to questions? You don't want someone who's going to shut down and roll their eyes and been like, why don't you just trust me? I'm the doctor here. You know, you need somebody who's going to work with you to find a solution for your life and your body. 
Um, so that's my one. And my second one, I don't think this is controversial, but I've had people tell me that it is. So, you know, everyone makes their own decisions. I think mental health is very underrated Mm -hmm. and your mental health is as important as your physical health. And if you are not ready, this is for previvors more so, I would say this piece of advice, if you are not ready to have surgery, it's probably not going to be good for your overall health if your mental health takes a dive because you do something that you are not okay with. So you need to be in a mindset where you're okay to move forward. You have to be happy with your the decision you've made, if you're reconstructing, if you're not reconstructing, what you what you are opting to do, you need to be okay with your decision. And it took me five years and a bunch of biopsies. And then one of my closest friends finding out during her first chemo appointment that her fertility preservation failed for me to finally say, well, and call my doctor and finally schedule my surgery. Everyone has their own trigger. Um, you know, so there's recommendations. There's the 10 years before your next of kin's age. There's you know, forces recommendations, there's going to be your doctor's recommendations. And then there's the fact that when it comes down to it, we kind of do have ticking time bombs if you have a genetic predisposition, Mm -hmm. but you have to do what's good for you. If I had found out at 19 that I was BRCA and someone had said, well, you have to have surgery now, I would have been destroyed. I would, there was no way for this is me speaking for me personally. Someone else might've been totally fine at that point. I would not have been ready. And I think it would have been very bad, very, very bad for my overall health and my anxiety and everything for me to have surgery before I was able to cope with it. So I think it's important to think through your decisions, have people you trust that you can talk to about them and just make sure you're there before you, it's permanent. You know, I mean, that's a, seems like a stupid thing to say, but I was just talking this morning to a friend who said, all right, I'm three months out. You're over a year out. How often do you still say to yourself, I can't believe I did this to my body. And the honest answer for me right now is I don't, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. Um, I obviously notice it. I'll look in the mirror and I'll be like, well, that's different. (laughs) You always remember, but I truly have zero regrets. I think it was the right time for me. I had the right support system. Um, you know, both within my household and outside of it. And I had the right medical team that really understood me. And I just think it's really important to be doing things when you're okay with them. If you are getting a, and I say choice in quotes because Brocco's kind of like a gun to your head and a plane going down in flames, not really like a, do I feel like having an ice cream choice? But um, it's just so important to be okay with what you're doing. And if you need to seek help in a therapy sense or a support group or otherwise, that's so, so important. Yeah. No, I love that. That's so many great tips. I I agree. I think you just, you speak so wonderfully too for a previvor and, and seeing your mom through the survivor part has probably also just given you different experiences and, you know, all the friends that you've met, you know, as well too, but it's, it's crazy. And I, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing your story and for, you know, giving 
education and tips and just a lot of wisdom, you know, that you've come across along the way. Um, and then just how you give back to the community. It's, it's just a beautiful thing. Oh, thank you so much. And I'm so honored that you asked to speak to me and trusted me to run my mouth a little bit on your platform. <laughs> of course. Where can people find you um, or what social media are you active on? Um, you know, if they're interested in your artwork or what you do. The most active place um, where you can find me is on Instagram and it's Melanie Lynn Penn Design. And that is where the Word Woman Project is running. So you can DM me if you want instructions for sending in a story or if you just want to chat or if you have questions or if you think I sounded crazy, whatever you'd like to say, <laughs> that's where you can find me. And um, if you're in the New York City area, as I said, I do work with the um five other amazing ambassadors for the New York Breasties and we put on events monthly and we do casual meetup dinners. So if you ever want to meet and you're in the city area, definitely you can find me there as well. Um, or if you're in another area, I have been told I'm decent at matchmaking people with one another on a, like a Braca level. So I might have a friend in your area I can help connect you with. <laughs> so definitely reach out. I love chatting with new people and yeah. <laughs> Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Melanie. You have an amazing day. Um, thank and, you. You too. And we will be in touch soon because I'm, I'm actually going to New York in a little bit. So I'll be in Yay. touch with you. Yes. <laughs> yes. We will be in touch. So amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much, my dear. You too. Have a great evening. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. I want to give a special thanks to Nicholas Lay for producing my podcast, DJ Breast Cancer. And a shout out to Whirligig Photography for their amazing content for my website. And the band Roustabout for sharing their song with me, Pariah. A special thanks goes out to all of you listeners. Please leave a review on iTunes and let me know any feedback or any future stories. More information can be found on my website, www.djbreastcancer.org.